Thank you for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. It's our prayer that this message will be both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, until further notice, we are not meeting physically in the church building and instead are live streaming our worship service on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We hope you will join us either on our website or on our Facebook page for worship. Now, here is this week's message. Well, good morning. I'm glad to be here with you as we continue our series, and I'm looking forward to getting together with you very soon. Today, we're in the second week of our series called The Essentials, where we're looking at the elements that are absolutely necessary for the church. If you missed last week's message, I strongly recommend that you go back and listen to it. It lays the groundwork for everything we're going to talk about this series Pretty much last week was in the introduction for each topic, so even if, you know, you may miss next week, you don't necessarily have to listen to this one, but the first one is very, very important, because the first one we learned that uh, for a Jesus follower, the church itself is absolutely essential. We learned that the church exists because this whole thing was Jesus's idea, and we learned that As a church, we are simply commanded to continue to make disciples as Jesus did. See, the church isn't a social club. The church isn't an organization that's just supposed to keep you busy when you're retired. It's not a place that just marries and buries you. It's not a place that just passes on traditions that somebody came up with. It's not a building or a set of programs. The church is a living organism that is leading people to become mature followers of Jesus Christ. And we saw last week that discipleship has always been the reason the local church gathered. That is why they came together. And a disciple, this is kind of a review from last week, a disciple is a committed follower of Jesus, one who learns, studies, lives out, and then passes on the teaching of their master, which of course for us is Jesus. We saw Jesus do this. He called 12 followers. You can read all about it in the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. He calls his followers. He teaches them for three and a half years and then tells them to go do it, and they will clearly do it throughout the book of Acts. You see, in other words, you can't follow Jesus if you're not a part of a church because he told you and he told me to make disciples, and the only way you can do that is if you're with other people, learning and also teaching others. And so now that we understand that the church is essential, this whole idea of gathering together is essential for a Christian, now over the next seven weeks, we're going to look at specific elements, that what the, the things that make up a church, the elements that a church has to have in order to be, well, well, a church. These are the things that are absolutely necessary. And the first up, and this should catch you, I hope this doesn't catch you by surprise, the first one is the essential of being biblically oriented. The essential of being biblically oriented. What I mean is it's absolutely necessary and mandatory for a church to be biblically oriented. And I hope to show you today that if a church isn't, well, then it's not really a church at all. It's something else completely. Now, I hope this doesn't come as a surprise, but today is going to be extremely extremely pragmatic. So don't tune me out. We're going to talk about why we have the Bible, and I promise I will not over-spiritualize it. That may have been done to you before, and it, it 
it's kind of not helpful a lot of the times. So today's going to be extremely pragmatic, and I hope you learn a lot. Because I was always told that the Bible was important. I was told it was God's word, so it was right. Well, that's pretty useful when you're a child, but when you get an adult, that doesn't, doesn't answer a lot of the questions you have. And then today we have people on both sides that misuse it, well, misuse and misrepresent the Bible all the time. One side acts as if the Bible was put together because the man wanted to control people, right? Like these people got together and said, we want to oppress and we want to keep everybody down. So we're going to put this stuff together. And then the other side say, well, the Bible fell out of the sky, leather bound, written in old English for us, perfectly preserved. And that's what we use. And, And neither of these are accurate. And so today I just want us to talk just simply and practically why the Bible is important and why a church must orient around it. When I say biblically oriented, what I mean is intellectually, emotionally, and functionally organized around the scriptures. That's what I mean. So let's dive right in. First, we're going to answer a question maybe you have. We're going to say, what is the Bible? The Bible, the word Bible literally means what? Nobody's answering. Phil should have got that one right and he didn't answer it. Yeah, it means books, plural, books. Not super spiritual, is it? But that's what it means. It means books. And the Bible, if you didn't know, we're just catching everybody up. The Bible has two main sections. You have the Old Testament, 39 books, and then you have the New Testament, 27 books. The Old Testament, or the the Old Covenant, we can call it, and then the New Testament is the New Covenant. Both of those together form what we call the canon, we're going to talk about that later, of the Holy Scriptures. And so, the Old Testament, we're going to start in the Old Testament, we'll get to the New Testament. The Old Testament's pretty easy to deal with, because what we call the Old Testament is simply the Jewish Scriptures, and they still are. So we don't have to question much about those because the development of those scriptures, the Jewish scriptures have been lost in antiquity and the 39 books of the Bible, of the, excuse me, 39 books of the Old Testament were pretty standard in Jesus's day. And so for us Christians, we got a pretty easy thing for the Old Testament and, and this isn't a cop out, it's just, it's just true. We can say if it was good enough for Jesus and his apostles, well, then it's good enough for us. And, and just to show you, I mean, there's so many examples, but we got to move on. The, the Gospel of Matthew quotes the Old Testament alone 55 times. I mean, they took it very serious. And, and look what Jesus himself says about the Old Testament. He says, Matthew 5, 17, he says, do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, Jesus saying the the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures pointed to him and he fulfilled them. And we know that Jesus took it serious. He mentions a bunch of Old Testament characters, which means he knows their stories and they understood what he was referring to. He mentions people like Moses, David, Abel, Zechariah, Daniel, Noah, Elijah, the widow Elijah helped. Remember that story we learned last series? Jonah, Solomon, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I mean, Jesus names all of these people, which shouldn't be a surprise to us because, well, Jesus was Jewish and this was the Jewish scripture. So Jesus took the Old Testament serious that explained out the covenant God had with the nation of Israel. And it's important for us to understand as Christians that our faith, Christianity, grew out of of the Jewish faith. It was an expansion of what God started with Abraham. 
And so because of that, Christians, we share many of the same presuppositions that are found in the Old Testament. For one, that God speaks. The beginning, Genesis 1 says, you know, God said or God spoke and it happened. So we believe that God speaks. We also believe that God reveals from Abraham to the patriarchs, to the kings, to the prophets. God reveals his will to his people. And we also believe that he tells people to write things down. Look, I know this isn't real rocket science. I'm just explaining some basic things that he literally told Moses, write this stuff down. Well, he wrote it down. Moses broke it, that kind of stuff. But he tells him to write it down. He told the prophets to write it down. He says to write it down and pass it out. So this was an understanding of the Old Testament, and Christians continue that. And because that's how God chose to work, the Hebrew people could pull together this collection of books and refer to them as scriptures. And most of this was about law and about how they were to behave because remember, he formed a nation, which just makes sense. God says, if you're gonna be a people around me, here's how you need to function, here's how you need to relate to me, and he put this together for them. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, this canon's pretty much established. What we call the Old Testament, Jesus studied, Jesus taught, Jesus referred to it, and reinterpreted it all the time around himself. But he wasn't done. You see, when Jesus came, he did things very different than other people, as you can imagine. But one of them that the the authors want to point out to us is that Jesus spoke with what's called authority. This may not sound like a big deal to us, but I'll explain to you why it is. Look at it, Mark 1.22, it says, The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. You see, what Jesus did is he taught with authority rather than appealing to an authority higher than him. It's a pretty big deal, and you may not notice, but for instance, when I teach, I'm never teaching you on my authority, ever. I'm teaching you on biblical authority. That's why I have absolutely not a hard time at all stepping on people's toes or saying things that are uncomfortable, because I'm not telling you my opinion doesn't matter. I'm teaching you what does have authority, which is the scriptures, and so then we use the scriptures as that. And so when Jesus taught, he didn't appeal to a scholar. He, he of course, referred to the, the Old Testament plenty. But Jesus would teach as if what he's saying carries the same weight as if God was saying it. He was teaching as if he didn't need to refer to or say anything else, just what he says is it. And it caught them by surprise. Like, wow, Jesus teaches so different than anything we've ever experienced. Because he'd usually do this after a miracle. And after the time, you know, you heal a blind man or you do something like that, you pretty much have everybody's attention to say what you want. They just kind of go with it. And so they were amazed how Jesus taught. And and luckily for us, the Gospel of John, John tells us why he could do this. John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You see, Jesus is and Jesus was God's Word in the flesh. So the same authority that God had when he spoke, in the beginning God created, or when he spoke the day and he spoke the night, that same authority of being able to speak things into existence was Jesus in the flesh. It's a pretty big deal if you think about it. But Jesus wasn't done. He says, okay, you have that, but here's what you need to do with my teachings. So if Jesus taught with his own authority because he was the incarnate word of God, then it makes sense that he expected his followers to take his, well, teachings serious. You see, his conclusion at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and if you've never read that, it's Matthew 5 through through 7. 
If you don't know what to do with the Bible, start there, because even if you're not a Jesus follower, you will absolutely be amazed at the ethics of Jesus. The things that he taught just blow people away, especially when you realize this was thousands of years ago. So you should really start there if you don't know where to start, but this is probably his most famous and practical sections of teaching, and then when he comes to the conclusion of it, he says this. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain came down, the streams rose, the wind blew and beat against the house and it fell with a great crash. According to Jesus, if you build your life around his teachings... He says your life will have a foundation that will never crumble, that storms can come, can, uh, pandemics can come, and you'll be firm and unshaken, just be like, man, I'm, I'm solid. No matter what happens around, my, my life is good. But if you choose to ignore Jesus' teaching, it's like building your house on sand. And all of us here have been in sand plenty. We know it washes and comes and goes quickly. And that's what many of you have faced recently. Those of you who built your life on something other than God's word, when this pandemic came, I, I knew if your life wasn't built on word of God because how you were acting. When you were shaking in fear and you were shook up going, but, but don't you know it's the same God who's always been? Like it's still okay. So Jesus says, if you want to be wise, build your life around my teachings or foolish, you can ignore them. And so Jesus teaches with this authority. Then he tells them what will happen if they practice and live out his teachings. They will have this solid foundation. And then look what he says. He commands his followers to teach others to obey him. This is very simple, I know, but look what he says, Matthew 28, 19 through 20. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations and teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. What's everything, Jesus? Everything, you know, everything, okay. And he says, surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So, as we talked about last week, this idea of the reason why the church exists is to make and mature followers of Christ. That's what we're here for, to help people grow. And then he commands his followers to do that with others. What do they need? Was teachings, right? It makes sense. And they did this. Because anyone who can predict their own death and resurrection and actually pull it off, you just stop questioning and you start doing. So he discipled them. He told them to go make other disciples, and so they did it with his teaching. Remember, we talked about this last week. After, after Jesus left, he ascended back to heaven. The 120 went in the upper room. The uh, Holy Spirit came and filled them. Remember, it calls this big scene in, in Jerusalem, and Peter goes outside, and what does he do? He starts preaching, right? He's, it's a public place in a public area. He refers to the Old Testament, shows how Jesus fulfilled these prophecies, told him about how Jesus was, is the Messiah, how Jesus died, and they killed him. He kind of adds that. You got to read it. Anyways, but he says that they killed him, and, but who he is and how they need to respond, and, and what they do when they brought him together. So these people responded to the gospel. They responded to this message that Peter preached, and then Acts 2.42 says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and prayer. So why did they devote themselves to the apostles' teachings? It's as simple, I know, because they're the ones who had the teachings of Jesus. Jesus taught them and said, now go teach others. 
They heard and experienced the value of the teachings of Jesus. And he told them to go do it. And so they, they did it. They went and preached the gospel, which is told everybody the announcement of the kingdom of God and what Jesus has done, this salvation. And then they taught them how to live like Jesus because that's what he commanded. And through the book of Acts, we see the apostles traveling around, preaching and teaching about Jesus. And I know I'm being redundant, but this is very important to understand. Here's why they did that. Because Jesus taught with authority. Because he was the word of God in flesh. And he told them that if they build their life around him, they will have a strong foundation that will never crumble. And, and of course, many other things. I'm making this, this simple. And then he predicted his own death and, then he, and resurrection, and he pulled it off, and he said, go do what I just did. I said, okay. And so they went and took his teaching. They went and preached. They went and taught despite threats of death, despite their friends actually being killed, and despite most of them being martyred for the faith, they took the teachings of Jesus extremely serious. But they didn't only teach by showing up on places or making a YouTube channel or anything like that because they didn't have it. Right? They would write letters. People would write them letters, and they'd write them letters back, encouraging them, strengthening them, telling them how to live like Jesus because Jesus taught them to do that. And so during this time when the apostles would travel around, you'd have uh, um, Gentiles, non-Jewish non Jesus followers, they would start to collect the Greek translation of the Old Testament, say, hey, hey, what is this? What is this thing that Jesus used? So they would start to collect the Old Testament, and of course, the Jewish Jesus followers already had that. But then they started to gather up the Gospels, the, the stories that were written about the life of Jesus, and then they started reading the apostolic instruction that, that was sent around from churches to churches and, and, you know, that they could read about how to be a Jesus follower. And these elements together, the, the Old Testament, which pointed to Jesus, the Gospels, which told the life of Jesus, and then the letters that would circulate, this would give them a full range of, this is the story of God moving. This is the story, and this is what God is doing, and here's how I can be a part of it. You see, from the very beginning, Christianity has always been a text-driven culture. And it was common knowledge, even to the people of the day, that these things were being written down and used all over. Look what Luke says. Luke 1.1 says this. Many have under, undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. And, and it keeps going, but that's enough. What Luke is saying, hey, you already know that many people have been writing this stuff down. They've been writing it down. They've been telling the things. Hey, I've taken up an orderly account so you can know that it's true. That's what Luke's purpose is. He said, hey, I want you to know the certainty of what you've been taught. So I've done my own investigation. And so during the time of the apostles, Jesus has left. He's in heaven. The apostles are going around teaching and preaching. The ones who originally followed Jesus, whom Jesus said, take my teachings and go teach other people. But then something happens to them, the same thing that happens to all of us. Well, they die. So what do you do? You have these letters circulating around. You have the ambassadors of the gospels, the one who Christ sent out with the gospel, with them gone. Now, what is the standard? How do you teach the next generation when the original ones have now passed on? And I love this because sometimes I can be a skeptic. I know skeptics say, well, what did you need a standard for, Brian? 
Why did they have to standardize anything? Why couldn't they just go with it? Well, it's because people started claiming that they had new revelations of the faith. You had false teachers rising up saying, nope, Jesus told me this. And it was in direct contradiction to what the apostles taught. And so if they were to make immature followers of Christ, if that's what we do as a church, and you have the apostles who left us these teachings and these letters and these stories about Jesus, if you have other people rising up saying, no, 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 actually, I have the right revelation, well, what do you do? If we are to make disciples, we got to get that straight. Because Jesus warned them about false teachers. Clearly, you can read it. It's all in the Gospels. Paul was very, very direct in correcting and confronting false teachers. I mean, Christianity has always been concerned about preserving and keeping the truth from the start. This isn't something they decided to do several centuries later. This was from the start. They knew what they had and they knew what they'd been entrusted with was serious. And it was a big deal. And so the false movements that scholars know about, and again, this was a while ago, like 2,000 years ago, one was the Marcion, and they taught that Jesus and the Jesus and God of the Old Testament were actually opposites. They were in opposition to each other, and he promoted and edited books of scripture, like he would take like the Gospel of Luke and edit it out, the things he didn't like, and he presented this list to his people saying, this is the right things. Then you have Montanism, which this leader, I, I love this, it's funny. He had a revelation that he was supposed to be in charge of everything and that his revelation was right and the apostles were wrong. I mean, go figure, right? I mean, this is what's going around. So just remember, this stuff didn't happen in a vacuum. The apostles are teaching. Then you have false teachers going, actually, Jesus spoke to me in a dream last night and I'm supposed to be in charge. Wouldn't you know? And by the way, all of our prophets are actually right. Those other guys were wrong. Then you had one called Ebonism, who taught Christ had no divine nature and was simply a man. And another, the most popular, was Gnosticism, which taught dualism, that there's good and evil, that the spiritual world was good and the physical world is bad. And my favorite of all of their views is this. They taught you could only be saved by the secret knowledge that comes from those in the know. How do you know if they're in the know? If they tell you they're in the know and they have the secret knowledge, then you can be saved. I mean, come on now, this, this is what's going on. So I, I know your college professor didn't tell you this. And I know people have told you about how the Bible, from, they don't tell you this kind of stuff, but this is history. These are facts. This isn't Christianity skewed history. This is like for real, real history. This is what was happening. They have the proof. And see, when Gnosticism was saying, we have the secrets, this church father, Arrhenius, or Arrhenius, he argued that the church's beliefs are quite open and accessible to all. So you have groups saying, we have the secrets, and early church fathers said, no, it's open to everybody. Our beliefs aren't secret. And so what do you do? You see, these false teachings started to spread during, right after the apostles, and it's the period of time, you can Google this, it's called the church fathers. It's from about 80 AD to 220 AD. And they saw the need to correct and establish orthodoxy. And before you let that scare you, all orthodoxy means is an authorized or general accepted theory, doctrine, or practice. Basically, people are rising up teaching all sorts of things that are wrong, that we know are wrong. We can't have that, so we need to set a standard. And here's what's so awesome. Again, this is so important. The church fathers didn't think they needed to set the standard. They knew the standard had already been set by Jesus and his apostles, 
So you don't have these men rising up and saying, oh, let, we'll get it right. They said, no, no, let's go back to the source. We already have it. So they would start mining and collected the gospels and these unedited books that they knew were authentic and true from the apostles of Jesus. And the great thing is they didn't all agree. You have different lists popping up from 151, like some like this book, some didn't like this book, but that's just what makes it so beautiful and true because things don't work out perfectly. And eventually this whole thing formed what's called the biblical canon. And canon just simply means list, standard, a rule. And so they collected these writings and they had some criteria that they used. So the only letters that would be accepted or the only books that would be accepted to make the list of saying, okay, here's the false teachings. We know that's not right. We need the real teachings of Jesus because, you know, we're to make disciples. So we, we got to teach them something. And so the first one is it had to be written by an apostle or close associate, meaning we're only a little 